This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Underused mechanics. Otto Skorzeny, agent of Mossad. Liqueur. And floral occultism. Once Upon a Time is a storytelling card game. You know this because you are supernally attentive to the sponsors who keep our show going. But did you know that there are a bunch of expansions available for Once Upon a Time? Before now, there were three expansions, Seafaring Tales, Enchanting Tales, and Create Your Own Storytelling Cards expansion. Seafaring Tales lets you weave tales of pirates, sailing ships, Stowaways, and mermaids. And scurvy? Well, there is no vitamin C card in the set. Enchanting Tales adds magical princess stories, brooms, jealousy, woodsmen, godmothers. And create your own cards. It seems pretty self-explanatory. At this point, the fearless listener is asking, Hey, what's this before now business? Well heard, fearless listener. Now there's a brand new fourth expansion for Once Upon a Time, Nightly Tales. Having rushed out to grab your copy of Nightly Tales, you'll tell a story from cards like Courtly Love, and A Herald, and The Reckless Aspect. And Battlefields and Betrayals, although that's Courtly Love, not Courtney Love, so obviously there's some crossover. And ending (laughs) cards like Because of Her Skill with a Lance, Women Were Allowed to Become Knights from Then On. Nightly indeed. Shall we recap? Have at it, good sir. There are three, nay, four expansions available right now for Once Upon a Time, 3rd Edition. And Nightly Tales is brand new. And it adds valorous deeds, bold characters, and all manner of Arthurian elements to your Once Upon a Time game. 38 new story cards and 17 new ending cards, all told. For more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. For fearless listeners who like knights, quests, and telling stories, and who have an excellent taste in card games. It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Kevin J. Maroney asks Ken and Robin. Patreon sponsor Kevin J. Maroney. Oh, that's true. I'd forgotten that he had his name legally changed to Patreon sponsor Kevin J. Maroney. All right. And he asks Ken and Robin, are there mechanics that you really admire in other designers' games that you wish were more widely used? Feel free to illustrate with mechanics you've made use of, such as Robin. Right. Uh, So uh, Kevin goes on to say something that I think is probably misremembered. That's why I didn't quote it. Which is that the feng shui mechanism where you uh, allow the players to describe things in the in the room, Kevin remembers me having said that that comes from somewhere that I'm not sure of where it comes from. I think, actually, he's uh, moving toward a thing I always say, which is, as a game designer, never take credit for being the first person to think of anything, because chances are someone is then going to go and find it elsewhere. So it's not that I remember borrowing that from somewhere, but I've forgotten where it is, but that I uh, just assume that everything that I've done that looks like an innovation has been done somewhere else by somebody else. Possibly by Greg Porter. Uh, Possibly. Now, I uh, also, I think I may have fewer items on my list than you can because I do not typically uh, design things by thinking, oh, somebody else has done this before. 
why don't I research that, check it out, see how they did it, and then do the version of that that fits my game, because for me that seems inefficient, and it's more efficient just to think up a new thing which might well turn out to be a parallel development to what somebody else has done, because there are only so many problems in role-playing game design, and uh, you've, you're probably hitting on something that somebody else has done. So since you're going to have more of these, because you're more of a look up what other people have done designer, uh, why don't you kick us off with an example? Well, I will start then with the one that I think is the best of all of these design techniques that I think should be more widely used. And I just have, I haven't uh, designed, as you say, towards that because I haven't made a game in which they would really work. But I think that Greg Stafford's passion mechanics that he introduced as part of Pendragon. In very which, controversial at the time. Very controversial at the time. And apparently, from all the use that they've seen, still apparently too controversial. But they uh, present your character as on a uh, spectrum or a continuum between, say, chaste and lustful, or whatever it happens to be. Your character's values come from what you say your character's values are when you generate them. So if you are a, a knight of the table round, you follow the code of chivalry. So that gives you this this set of passions. And as you encounter these uh, passion stimuli in play, so if you en encounter uh, the loathly damosel and you are um, lover of beauty as your passion, you have to roll to actually help her across the river, even though you know just as well as anyone that helping people across the, the river, no matter how loathly, is how you get ahead in Arthurian legend. But as a Arthurian knight, <laughs> there might you be have a sword in there or something. Right. There, there may be a sword. Who can say? Um, or a castle or, or another loathly thing that you can then kill and get your yayas out. The larger point being, you're not playing the game metafictionally. You're playing the game within the world construct, the belief construct, the emotional or religious construct that your character actually has. And so being able to drive action in that way and present story options that way, I find it more mechanically elegant than, oh, right, my character also uh, loves beauty at quirk level, so I should do this and get a point for it. I think that actually having the passions there on the sheet turns out to drive play in a way that merely having a list of advantages and flaws does not. Robin, what do you think about passions? Um, I, I think that's a really interesting mechanic, and I would be, uh, I would like to see other people take that up because at the time, the reason it was controversial is it placed constraints on player behavior. Uh, now we're seeing a whole wave of designs that are all about placing constraints on players and GMs, for example, with the whole apocalypse world and all of its uh, uh, spawn and minions. And so it'd be interesting to see new approaches to uh, getting people to accept constraints on their character's behavior that requires them to behave in a uh, way beyond just sort of the D&D &D alignment systems or what have you. So I think that is sort of a, a fruitful area to explore. There we start to get into the whole question, though, of carts and horses in game design, because you would need to have another setting or genre that required the use of behavioral constraints, right? It makes a lot of sense that those are in Pendragon, because chivalrous behavior is very markedly different from uh, contemporary behavior and <laughs> and for murder hobo behavior and for murder hobo behavior and so that's a way to require you to behave the way that the characters in that genre uh, tend to behave and uh, that was something that people I think would be more open to now but in order to have a place to explore that uh, you would I guess if you're doing like a, a a story game that sort of justifies the the whole point of this game is to explore this very 
constrained idea for the course of, of uh, one game or a mini campaign or something. And so, uh, and again, uh, since you can't know everything that's going on in a role-playing game design uh, now, if you ever could, probably a bunch of you will comment and list six different games that are exploring that. So, and good for you for knowing those games. So I guess I should uh, mention something. One thing that I would be interested to see more use made of the last time it really appeared was in uh, Underground uh, by Ray Winninger. Mm. It's going back to the old idea of you can uh, have horrible things happen to you during uh, character generation. And, of course, that originally comes from Traveler, where the most horrible thing would be that you would die. Yeah. <laughs> well, while sort of gambling with the system as to whether you push it one step over the line to get more abilities, but also go risk having your character uh, killed during his backstory and have to start over, uh, which is a uh, rightly been mostly discarded as an odd and frustrating idea. But it adds piquant spice to the mini game that is character creation. Yes. And of course, in order to do that, you have to to zoom back another step, you have to have a random character generation system of some kind yeah. or some random element in character generation. So <laughs> no one is going to pick died off of the chart. Certainly. Right. And so in underground, it made sense for uh, Ray to evoke that because that is about near future messed up super soldiers. And the whole point of the game is that you are messed up in some way. And so the character generation is essentially, you know, mad scientist government work where things will go wrong in your manufacture. And so uh, that is hardwired into the, the setting and the system. And that makes absolute sense. And it would be fun. I think now that we're there's a bit of a move now toward certainly my own design toward much quicker character generation and uh, I think there are interesting, fun things that can be done uh, with uh, different random character generation systems, whether or not they include the possibility of something uh, going awry while you're creating that uh, character. Well, it's something uh, like uh, Skullduggery, where you have the card-driven character generation. It'd yeah. be fun to just have a card that is going to be, oh, and this is your horrible flaw, right? yeah, exactly. the, the awful thing that happened to you that made you the person you are today. And it could be, you know, like you were built in a government lab that... You know, was built to government standards everywhere else, or, you know, something else happened. You know, you were hit by a meteor or something, you know, whatever it happened to be. Uh, I thought when you said underground that you were going to go after what I consider to be the great revolutionary, beautiful thing about underground that no one ever did anything with, which is the mechanics for spending experience on social change. That if you're going to go out and fight bad guys in the world of underground, you're doing it ostensibly to make the world a better place, not so that you can finally get x-ray vision. And so you would get the experience points and you could apply them to a very interesting and crazily advanced for the time grid on which you might have improved the crime situation on one street. But by doing that, you have created other uh, perverse incentives that will a drive more stories and B demonstrate that it's not as simple as, um, uh, uh, shooting uh, child poverty in the face with a green boxing glove, that there's more going on in society, and that as you push and strain against that social grid to try and build out this zone of improvement, you A, you make enemies, and B, you cause other social pathologies to emerge. The old trade-off between liberty and security is the classic one, but you can imagine a game in which as you have uh, things happen to you, you spend those experience points or, the, or those game-earned points to change the world, but those changes then drive other 
negative changes. And you can sort of see that a little bit in uh, Burning Empires, uh, uh, Luke Crane's game, uh, the sort of Burning Wheel based on uh, the comic book, which names escapes me. I think it's Iron Empires. I'll say it's Iron Empires, and then Luke can write in angrily and fix me. But it won't <laughs> fix me, but it'll change that. Uh, but there's a really great system in that for sort of creating this the world in which your adventure is going to happen, but every decision you make about that world creates more horrible problems uh, for your story going on forward, that it advantages or disadvantages a certain kind of alien attack specifically, but there's lots of other possible things. And you could take that Burning Empire's world generation thing and pull it around and use it as a uh, in-play modality by which you're changing the status of the world by acting. Um, I think that that would be a great thing for a, a proper superhero game where you're playing, you know, your, your real Justice League Avengers Paragon level characters and they can go out and yeah, if they stop, uh, you know, some guy from setting off a nuclear bomb, cool, but now they've invaded a country and they've set up new precedents and they've changed the way the world looks at those superheroes as well as what else, else the world does. So the, the old kryptonite weapons program gets another couple of billion dollars in the defense department, that kind of thing. A lot of uh, design innovations that I admire and would like to see spread more appeared. Uh, and I think were acknowledged as brilliant, or at least I acknowledge them as brilliant, <laughs> but they appeared in the wrong place. And that to wit is in Dungeons and Dragons. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> in uh, D and D four that our pal uh, Rob Hanso brilliantly designed uh, in, uh, but unfortunately had been uh, led astray by the uh, uh, D&D brand remit of the time, which was, let's get away from the things that people think of as D&D. And of course, guess what? Uh, D&D players wanted something that felt like D&D. So uh, fourth edition, although it's got all sorts of innovations that you can go back and mine, uh, I think would have been th those innovations would have been better received if they'd been presented as a different fantasy game, which in many cases they sort of have been snuck into 13th age. Yes. Uh, uh, not even sort of snuck in, but uh, some of the best things yes, very clearly snuck in, you know, <laughs> explicitly uh, labeled as having been placed in there. And I guess the first of those, since we're talking about that is the compact monster stats. Oh God. Yes. Those monster stats, the, the, the simple stat blocks, give you everything that you need to know about that monster in order to run it in a fight. Uh, they also, uh, without explicitly saying so, guide you through what that creature is going to do during the fight. And I think at 13th Age, even more so... Yeah, it makes it much more explicit. Makes it much more explicit and has the cool things the creature can do kind of pop up uh, kind of randomly so that as the beleaguered uh, DM, you are not forced to figure out which of the 18 different things the giant black dragon could do, including all of these wizard spells that he has that you would then have to look up and uh, irrelevant stuff about their ecology and frequency of appearance and all that stuff. But just everything you need to know to run that frickin' monster is there in a few easily accessible lines that once that monster comes up in the initiative order, you can have it do its cool different things without straining your brain or without basically getting it wrong so that the creature is a walkover when it's supposed to be really powerful. And so that is, uh, you know, I would love to see small manageable stat blocks in every single game designed from here until uh, our planet uh, burns up and falls into the sun. On the, on the topic, not of destroying the planet, but on the topic of fourth edition uh, innovations, I liked the daily power. 
that, you know, as a fighter, you could once per day have the, the great cleave or whatever, or, or, you know, depending on which track you built, you would have a specific feat or sort of superpower that would happen once a day. And I think that that is a neat mechanic and a neat mechanism. And I sort of used that, although I took that sp- the specific iteration of it away from, as I say, many places, but uh, especially Wilderness of Mirrors by John Wick, where your spies and Knights Black Agents can do their cool thing guaranteed once per session. So that if you're the shooter, you know you're going to make one shot and look awesome. If you're the uh, healer, you know you're going to pull someone back from the brink of death at the last minute. Whatever it happens to be, you're going to be able to do your cool thing and get a little spotlight time. And you can bank against that and, and use that tactically as a player. And I really enjoyed playing that when I was playing 4th Edition. And I like uh, the flexibility that it gives you in character design, uh, even outside the sort of very strictly class-based uh, mechanics of D and I think, I think Knights like agents demonstrated that it works on a skill driven system as well. And so therefore what's not to love. Yeah. And in general, I also really like the, you know, again, you have these very contained uh, powers that you know what they do, you know what they can't do. And you can have a handful of little cards as a reference point uh, for some players. Uh, they would get decision paralysis with having a bunch of different things to choose between. And one of the things that fourth ed does that i uh, don't think you want universal between every character class is it has every character class with a handful of cool things they can do. Whereas, you know, some players just want to, you know, be the, I roll and I hit it or I roll and I miss guy. Uh, but in general, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, cool stuff that can be stolen from that. And just to zip back also to the, uh, the monsters, another cool thing in that was that if you were an orc or a goblin or a knoll or whatever, they didn't just have, all orcs are like, you know, basically like this, and here's a more powerful version of that orc. But you had the idea that there were different characters who had different specialties, different creatures. So you would have the, you know, the orc crossbow man would have a different cool power than the orc sea witch, so that you could uh, build a group of enemies who were all thematically linked, but didn't all just do the same thing. Right. And I think that that is, it's odd that it took that long to, to think of that. Uh, because, of course, you know, in a movie uh, fight scene where the characters fight a bunch of uh, orcs, of course, they're all going to have different uh, specialties and weapons and stuff. And so that that uh, is another thing that I think has uh, been insufficiently stolen. Yeah, I think a lot of people sort of just cobbled that together by saying, well, there's two gnolls and four orcs in the room. And that gave you the equivalent of having two bruiser orcs and uh, one uh, a shaman orc and a bunch of other orcs that you had some of that same power in terms of mechanics that I've stolen uh, from other people. Uh, I think that uh, Elizabeth uh, Shoemaker Sampat's push pyramid, uh, which is from blowback is just crazily good. And I stole it just right out of its shoes for nice black agents as the van pyramid, which is the algorithm that drives the main bad guys actions. so that you, the GM, if you can't immediately think of, oh my gosh, I have no idea what the bad guys are doing, you can just go the next step up on the push pyramid and say, oh, well, the players have gotten this level more annoying. Here are my annoying choices. And even here's the one that flows organically from what they did last time. So by just providing that algorithm, uh, again, something that, you know, is totally possible and uh, technologically available to us forever because it's just a flow chart. Um, Elizabeth makes a illusion of organic 
story develop and you can use it if you're stuck or not use it, or you can constrain the bad guys to that action. If you're playing against someone like the Borg who are going to be operating in such and such a way or a faceless government bureaucracy that will be responding in such and such a fashion. And so I think having uh, that algorithm for the bad guys, the push pyramid is something that I'm surprised no one did until Elizabeth, or if they did it, they kept it a big secret. And I'm surprised that everyone hasn't done it since Elizabeth, because I think it's one of the really terrific pieces of GM facing tech, as opposed to player facing tech uh, that you can have in a game. Now, not every brilliant rule lends itself to being uh, stolen as readily as that one does or the ones that we're talking about. And so often the things that, uh, that I see that I think are really clever, it's like, well, that is the clever thing about that game. And if you tried to uh, port that into anything else, you would just be overtly revealing your influence and it's hard to build out from that. So for example, the, or it's hard to build a game that isn't that game already. Exactly. So for example, Gregor Hutton's three sixteen with that cool sort of ranked, uh, combat system where the uh, characters are kind of advancing almost sort of in a uh, 19th century warfare style and getting mowed down and you know that that is uh, very uh, very appealing but also uh, so distinctively what it is that I can't imagine how you could steal it for anything else that wouldn't just feel like uh, 316 with different chrome slapped on it. Yeah I, I can see ways you would skin 316 but I don't see how you would take that mechanic necessarily and make it part of another game in the same way that you can take the push pyramid and make it part of another game or passions and make them part of another game. Uh, another game, like another mechanic like that is the emotional hit locations from Jason Morningstar's gray ranks, where the moving the character over their own emotional map and driving them down to one of the death corners is the actual, you know, that's the story. That's how you graphically represent the story. And again, if a game is not about just, monstrous continuous trauma in the way that gray ranks is, which is about being a teenager during the Warsaw uprising. Hurrah. Um, then you, uh, wind up, I would think with just having a super overcomplicated, um, uh, emotional damage system. Uh, but for something like gray ranks that literally puts that front and center, it's just unimaginably good. And when you see it, it's one of those things, like you say, you say, oh, that's the really great thing about that game, as opposed to how can I steal this for another game? Because you can't. You can't just bolt that onto the side. It would overbalance the whole game system. Another cool idea uh, that would be neat to see you come back again uh, would be stealable from Earth Dawn. Uh, the way that they handled uh, magic uh, weapons in that was that the idea wasn't that you you know, put away your plus one sword when you found a plus two sword, and then you threw that out when you found a plus three sword, but that you would have a magic item. You don't have the golf bag. Yeah. <laughs> and then over time, you would invest experience points in it, awakening its powers so that uh, it would become appropriately uh, matched to your level of badassness as you went through your career. So the idea is, you know, when you first pick up Stormbringer, it's just sort of, you know, lightly moaning and can you know, nick a few holes in people. But as you become worthy of uh, wielding Stormbringer, that is that you start spending your experience points on it, it's uh, greater and greater powers uh, manifest. And so that enables you to still have your character with the cool themed weapon that matches you uh, without, uh, you know, sort of the uh, classic D&D of, well, it's all just disposable junk until you get to the plus five and then you top out. Excalibur is only plus two, so I'm going to get rid of it and use a, a different sword. That never happens. Um, I think that uh, another mechanic that I like to see 
uh, and I don't know that this is, I think this is a little more copyable, um, is the plot stress mechanic that I think Chris Birch, uh, did in the Fate game Star Blazer Adventures, in which the, there is the, the, the plot basically has a hit point track, and as things happen that might damage that, the, the sort of stability of the situation that you're in, it takes damage, and once it's gotten to a certain level, once the plot is bloodied or wounded, bad things start happening. And so that provides you with another little GM's helper of saying, oh, yeah, it has been 10 rounds. I wonder if maybe the atmosphere sealant has gone. Oh, look, it has. Bang, there you go. And now everyone has to, you know, also uh, uh, put on their space helmet or whatever else they have to do because you're driving an action uh, based on how fast the characters are chewing through the setting or how fast or how sloppy they are at letting bad guys shoot through the setting. And that can provide a really great uh, ticking time bomb mechanism that I think if you have to keep track of it yourself as the GM with all the other stuff you have to do, that can go by the boards. So I enjoy that plot stress mechanic. I sort of built a little of it into heat in Knights Black Agents, but I sort of built one side of the GM facing part of it. It, it does a lot more than I did with it in heat. Another challenge, even if you're thinking of, Hey, what cool thing can I bring back? That needs to be brought back, whether that's, you know, random character generation or bad things happening during character or any of the things that we've mentioned is that the uh, best rules are, in my view, the really simple rules and the ones that sort of fall away after you learn them and just sort of become the set of assumptions that guide play so that the more noticeably brilliant a rule is, the more attention and focus that it often requires at the table. And so the, the things that um, I think are examples of really great design often are very simple and subliminal things that you stop noticing once they become part of your play style. And so uh, that's uh, something that you can adopt from other people without making too big a thing of it, but that the more obviously innovative rules are, uh, you know, it's okay if it takes up a lot of uh, mental space in Pendragon that the passion system you know, is, is so key to that game, but it can't be the key to every game. And, uh, you know, maybe the challenge is to find a way to achieve the effect of the cool rule that you're looking at in a simpler, uh, less obtrusive way. And I guess at that point, uh, as one of the rules of the podcast is once we start uh, questioning the premise of the Ask Ken and Robin question, we uh, then stealthily sneak uh, through the cloak of a commercial into our upcoming hut or segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom 
or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope! Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now! Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. Our unobtrusive black sedan is parked in a distant side road. All we can hear are the cause of faraway crows. And as we wait for our rendezvous, where a man in a Volkswagen will drive up and either kill us or lead us to the Tradecraft Hut, we know that we are once again in the proximity of the top-secret Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, we're revisiting a real-life sinister historical character that we've referenced in previous episodes of the show, most notably in episode 61, Ken, when you went back in time to thwart his effort to rescue Mussolini from imprisonment. Uh, that is Otto Scorzani, yes. a, a Nazi officer and operative who uh, has attached a bit of perhaps sometimes uh, unnecessarily admiring legend to him. But uh, there was a revelation recently that uh, is important if true. But before we get to that, since we don't have hyperlinks in our podcast yet, where you can just hit a link and immediately be listening to episode 61, why don't you... Once again, fill us in on the 101 of who Otto Scorzani is or was. Uh, Otto Scorzani was in the SS, uh, the Liebstandarte uh, division, which was Hitler's bodyguard uh, division. Uh, he served as a uh, commando and uh, is most famous for once he became uh, sort of noticed enough for his gallantry and whatnot in, in combat setting up this uh this this team that would go in and do things behind the scenes such as rescue Mussolini uh kidnap Admiral Horty who was the Hungarian leader who looked like he was about to make a peace with the allies and had to be gotten off um uh off premises and he went in and famously directed the uh sabotage teams behind the scenes during the battle of the bulge who wore american uniforms and went in and tried to uh, uh, so discord behind American lines in advance of the, uh, Bastogne and in the Bulge invasion. Um, so he is a, a, a Nazi doer of daring deeds for Hitler and eventually wound up sort of kind of running, uh, Hitler's bodyguard entirely because he had moved very decisively during the, uh, Valkyrie assassination attempt to prevent the conspirators from taking control of Berlin. And that's the kind of thing that Hitler notices. Believe you me, and the world is in the list of people who tried to kill Hitler and people who tried to stop those guys. People in list B 
tend to do pretty well for themselves. So he managed to get out of uh, Germany at the end of the war, go to Spain, where he hung out and sort of did uh, various exciting consulting services, among them uh, setting Egypt up with uh, rocket scientists and former Gestapo torturers, because, uh, you know, once you've started killing Jews in the 40s, it's hard to stop, I guess, eating peanuts. So he wanted to make sure that various anti-Jewish um, uh, forces around the world had plenty of former Nazi expertise of the sort that he didn't feel like providing himself, but was happy to take a finder's fee for setting up. So the revelation recently uh, has been that uh, supposedly Scorzani uh, ended his career as a hitman working for Mossad. Uh, now, this, of course, uh, is the kind of twist that you uh, normally confine to Pulp Fiction, in which the uh, bad guy is forced by circumstances to uh, switch sides. Um, I read the uh, original article, found the uh, style excitable. So uh, why don't you, uh, I guess, first of all, tell us what the story is, and then we'll examine uh, just how uh, likely it is that it's true. So the story is that the uh, Mossad wants to whack um, uh, a German rocket scientist named Heinz Krug, who is working for the Egyptians, building medium-range missiles for them. And, obviously, and when is this? This is in the, in the 60s, uh, in the uh, early 1960s. Um, and obviously once Egypt starts having missiles that they could drop on Israel, it's just a hop, skip and a jump to, uh, starting the war over again and, uh, completing the final solution, the Mossad understandably against this kind of behavior. So they want to take out this guy, Krug Krug had been set up by our, our, our buddy friend of the show, uh, Scorzani. And so friend of the show, but no friend of ours, but no friend of ours. Um, so they wanted to get to Krug. They couldn't get to Krug, but they knew that Scorzani basically could get to Krug, uh, because Scorzani had been the guy who put him in his job in the first place. So they went to Spain and, uh, mapped out Scorzani's routine for a hit, just like you do. Um, using local operatives uh, who are called Cyanit, the um, uh, the helpers, uh, lo- sort of local assets, friendly agents in place. They put Scorzani in a surveillance box, revealed themselves to him, and uh, he knew that they were Mossad. Uh, he says, I know you're Mossad. You've come to kill me. And the guy said, don't be an idiot. If we were here to kill you, you'd be dead already. You have an option. We can go back to the killing you, or you can whack Heinz Krug for us. And Scorzani... Uh, a, a man of few to know, um, uh, <laughs> abiding, uh, convictions in this telling. In one column, we have, I am dead. Yes. In the other column, um, we have the other guy. The is other dead. guy is dead. I didn't, I never liked him anyway. And Sco, Scorzani, um, set up, uh, Krug for being assassinated is how the story goes. And that he wound up, uh, sort of fingering Krug for, uh, Mossad, uh, action or possibly doing the dirty deed himself. And yeah, as you say, the story is highly colored in Forward Magazine, which is America's oldest Jewish uh, newspaper. But it has been confirmed in the pages of Haaretz, which is an Israeli newspaper, by a former Mossad agent, uh, Rafi Aitan. And uh, Rafi Aitan is the guy who masterminded the uh, snatching of Eichmann out of Brazil. So he's got the, the credibility for having been the kind of guy who might have been involved in a similar action against Scorzani. And he's straight up said in the pages of Haaretz, yes, uh, we ran Scorzani. End of story. Now, he has not said 
we ran him and had him go into Egypt and kill a guy. He has not said anything else about that. But given that Scorzani had set up Krug, uh, Krug could not be gotten to through Nasser's security. Um, Mossad doesn't really win anything by revealing this because they would much rather have everyone in Egypt believe they can pass invisibly through Egyptian security rather than having to suborn Nazis, unless it's a second order disinformation, which they're saying you can't even trust a Nazi. Well, they, they've run out of Nazis now, yeah. right? It's a, One hopes. <laughs> the possibility of still doing that now is, you know, he might, maybe there's a guy who can approach slowly in his But walker, the notion but... being that if they can, if they can get to Scorzani, they could also get to some guy in ISIS or some guy in Al Qaeda who you would have think, no, he's not cooperating with Israel, but ah, turns out he is. And that would be the sort of second order reason to lie about this is to, uh, as opposed to saying Mossad people can get to you anywhere. It would be Mossad can turn anyone. No one can be trusted in your organization. Please have a lovely mole hunt. Uh, type operation. But on the other hand, if, you know, Rafi Aitan has confirmed it in the pages of Haaretz, that's as close to confirmed as anything ever gets in the world of intelligence, because I think as we've seen previously in the Tradecraft Hut, any given story can be plausibly cast as disinformation. And so therefore, we don't know anything ever happened for sure. Right. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that you do not... If you had a hand in it, you don't want to go to your grave not saying you, know, yeah, you, you want to, turned yeah. Otto Scorzani into a Mossad operative. I'm not saying I ran Scorzani, but I ran Scorzani. Um, yeah. So does this open up other sort of Tim Powers-esque possibilities for 60s uh, spy activities? Perhaps even something that might fit into Fall of Delta Green? I think absolutely it does, because um, Scorzani is attached not just to the commando operations, but also to Odessa, the rat lines that ran the Nazis into hiding places in Latin America and sadly into America and other places like that. So you can have Scorzani, for example, being one of the people who knows where the Karotechia bodies are buried in the Delta Green setting. Those are the occult Nazi bad guys. Um, and even though the Karotechia in the sort of ongoing history of the setting has pretty much been stomped to pieces by Delta Green in the 50s. The notion that one or two of the surviving guys are out there running around or that you can then say, well, now that Karotechi is gone, we've still got these Nazis. Uh, maybe we should send them into whack the Nyarlathotep cult because worst case scenario, they've killed Nazis for us. And best case scenario, they've disrupted that Nyarlathotep cult. So that notion of using some of the worst people in the world as um, uh, disposable sabot rounds against uh, the mythos is is kind of a cool if one. If they go insane, no one, no one notices. It doesn't change their uh, <laughs> uh, ability to perform or anything like that. And you don't endanger anyone you actually care about. It's kind of an ideal situation. And uh, with Delta Green, right, when you're creating it originally in the 90s for a continuity that works in the 90s, it's easy enough to... Uh, say that the Nazi cultists were wiped out in the 50s, but when you're doing something in, said in the 60s, you might want to find some wiggle room there because, you know, occult Nazis. Well, even in the, um, even in the, in the basic setting, you did have the one uh, sort of, uh, ranch that was still, I think there were three Karatekia bad guys left. And so that was someone for your player characters. If you just couldn't decide what to do, I think as, uh, as Tynes put it, um, stomping Nazis is always good fun. So that was sort of your introduction to the setting. And that, speaking of, uh, mechanics I stole, I basically stole that notion and put a bunch of Nazis into Day After Ragnarok to provide, uh, you know, colorful targets for players to hit. And then by the time they've done that, they will have worked their way into the story, 
um, uh, in plenty of other ways. And certainly if in the 90s continuity, there were a few Nazis left, certainly in Delta Green's 1962, there's going to be plenty of Nazis left because, hey, guess what? In our 1962, there were plenty of Nazis left. We didn't root Klaus Barbie out of retirement until the 80s, for God's sake. So the notion that there's a couple of Karatekia guys or the rival uh, Nazi occult program, Project Leo, um, which is historically accurate. And so why not put it in? Uh, that might be running in parallel and they're seeing Karatekia get busted up and turtling up in the same way that after, uh, after Captain America defeats the Red Skull, Hans Strucker says, well, I'm just going to go over here and see what Captain America does and not get in his way for a while. So it's, uh, it's the standard Hydra modality where, yeah, you've cut off that head, but perhaps some heads are growing. Uh, it's in your place. Who can say? <laughs> yes, and it's and it's uh, the mythos, so it might literally be heads growing. Yes, exactly. It could very well be um, uh, that uh, two-headed Shub Hitlerath is down there somewhere in the Paraguayan jungle. Uh, well, we've uh, uh, we're getting to wander afield. Uh, is there any more Scorzini-related footnotes you want to throw in before we uh, hustle our way to the next hut? Um, I'm not sure that I have any more Scorzini-related footnotes that we didn't footnote already in uh, the other episode, I think that one of the things that I have found is fun with Scorzani. And again, fun with Scorzani. What isn't fun with Scorzani? And I don't know if I mentioned this at the time. Uh, I have used parallel earth Scorzanis to provide player characters who would ordinarily not team up with Scorzani, the excuse to team up with Scorzani and then realize what a terrible idea that is. So it's like, no, no, I am from the other earth where we won world war one. And so I am not a Nazi. Ha ha ha. I'm just Scorzani. And they're like, Oh great. We have Scorzani on our side. And then you realize, Oh my God, that was a terrible plan. And that's uh, some of the fun of, of alternate histories. You can tempt them into doing, uh, doing deals with people that they might otherwise not uh, in a horror setting. Yeah, you have to do with Scorzini because if you don't, worse things are going to happen. And in, you know, history, again, that is what was going to happen. Something much worse in Egypt with uh, intermediate range missiles. I have all of the competence and none of the evil. Well, some of the evil. Only just enough evil to make me so very, very competent, except I may have made up my competence also. Hmm? That may be part of my evil. <laughs> okay. Well, now that we're annoying Germany with our bad German accents, it's time to uh, make our exit to our upcoming segment. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at Drive-Thru RPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer 
consumer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Noel Warford. Andrew M. Reichart. Derek McMullen. Eben Lindsay. And Ethan Cordray. Quaff a virtual amaretto in the exclusive club that is our Patreon, behind the secret door at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. What's that? No delicious smells wafting off the range? No jars being carefully opened and shook out into bubbling pots? Why are we opening up this this side area of the food hut and what are all these bottles doing here? We're in the liquor cabinet of the food hut. Oh, no! Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the bottomless virtual liquor cabinet of the food hut. And Patreon supporter Ethan Cordray has asked us to talk about liquors, driven uh, liqueurs, rather, driven mad by your reference to Yukon Jack, which, as close as I can tell, is basically the Tennessee honey of Canada, Robin, um, which is... An odd choice, I think, but what the heck? Let's talk about liqueurs. Do you want to defend Yukon Jack's honor before we move, we move on? Right. So, Yukon uh, Jack, I had not heard of Yukon Jack until my uh, American brother-in-law uh, started talking about how uh, he lives in Canada now, but at the time lived in the U.S. And uh, one of his uh, mentors as a uh, musician really loved Yukon Jack and went to great lengths to get it. And so we were talking about this improbable drink and laughing about it. And, uh, you know, it's some, it's something like 80 proof by American standards. And, uh, I think by everyone's standards, the the proof system apparently (laughs) is different in Canada. We have a different way of saying that. I think, uh, in order to lie to ourselves more effectively. Um, and so at any rate, this sounded like a funny thing that didn't even exist anymore until I, uh, went on to the LC site, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, which is our government-run spirits monopoly, and found that it, it still existed in several stores in Toronto. So we got some, took it up to Ray, and opened it up. And it's actually kind of good. Yeah, well, like I said, the Tennessee honey of Canada. Tennessee honey is kind of good, but I again, it's not where I would plant my liqueur flag if I were trying to be classy. Um, it's Well, it's not classy, but it is it is quite uh, drinkable as, mm-hmm. as liqueurs go. And it's a very, very, so basically it's like the ice wine of whiskey, uh, very, very sweet and uh, surprisingly uh, good. Uh, it's not something, uh, well, first of all, let's go back to first liqueur principles. Never drink enough liqueur to get drunk on it. Yeah, because then you'll have a horrible sugar hangover. It'd be you like you got drunk really, on Snickers really, really regret that the <laughs> next morning. You know, there are all sorts of terrible hangovers to have, but a liqueur hangover is something that you do not want to mess with. And so um, many liqueurs solve that problem for you by not being drinkable in great quantities. <laughs> yes, yes that's, that's the solution Curacao has picked. So uh, to zoom out further from liqueur facts, in North America, there's one liqueur that occupies the vast bulk of all liqueur sales, Bailey's Irish Cream, 
uh, the last time I saw a number was 83% of the cure market. Which is weird because, I mean, I'm as fond of drinking as the next guy, fonder, actually, since you're the next guy, but I don't use Bailey's that much except for in Irish coffees. It's just not part of my liqueur universe. I guess I don't, you know, when I make uh, a white Russian, I don't feel like adulterating it with Bailey's. Um, in, as, as Rince Priebus famously said, I'm not pouring Bailey's on my cornflakes, which as someone pointed <laughs> out is an awfully specific thing to be saying, <laughs> but you are putting it on your fruity pebbles, aren't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Got me. Actually probably be kind of good on cocoa pebbles. If that's the worst thing that winds up happening to Rince Priebus this year, he's, it's, he's doing well. Yeah. No, but, uh, but Bailey's is, is fine and who doesn't love Bailey's, but it just strikes me as an odd thing to be doing four fifths of liquor sales of, of liqueur sales. There's a large chunk of uh, people for whom Bailey's is the one drink they have in the house. Right. And they uh, probably have it in coffee or hot chocolate. Well, it is deliciously candy-like. I mean, who doesn't love Bailey's? But it just strikes me as, you know, again, uh, it's it's fine. But I think that there's other things. If you're going to just straight up drink liqueur uh, as a thing, I recommend either avocat or rom pope, which are basically the same things. They're rum with egg in it. And so it's like, I'd like eggnog, but I'd not like the mild social respectability that comes from making eggnog. I'd just like to get really hammered on an eggnog-like substance. And both of those are terrific. They're shelf-stable, which seems impossible, but it's true. I mean, probably not for years, but no open bottle of avocado or rom pope is going to last for years. Um, and you can just drink that straight and have a great, great holiday party. So I recommend either of those if it's just going to be your plowing liqueur and don't get drunk on it because, oh my God. But yeah, I think that's the fun stuff right there. If I was to go to a, uh, a liqueur to just drink straight up as a drink at a bar, I would very, very rarely, I would go for Amaretto on the rocks. Uh, Amaretto was my starter liquor, actually. Um, I used to do Amarettos and Coke when I was, le- even in Oklahoma, legally too young to drink. Um, I, I drunk wild turkey before that, but again, Oklahoma. What is the drinking age in Oklahoma? Uh, when I was 18, it was 18, and then it was raised to 21, but I was grandfathered in. Ah. So I could still drink, even though people younger than me could not, which angered them a great deal, but there you go. So I drank a lot of Amaretto and Cokes and Amaretto Sours back in the day. And then again, Amaretto is, is super delicious with, with Coke, I think, and... You know, in theory, you could, you could have that. I would believe that being 83% of liqueur sales because it's, it's, it's more, it's more uh, pleasant, I think, than having Bailey's lying around. Also, Bailey's, I think, goes bad after a while. I, I know there are, uh, uh, young folk who listen inexplicably to this podcast. So <laughs> often uh, as prisoners on long car rides, <laughs> sometimes even by choice, even more inexplicably. Kids. Hey, fellow kids. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> the first thing we're going to say is that the good thing about starting liqueur is that it encourages you to drink responsibly. Possibly because you don't actually want to drink that many of them. Um, but yeah, it's often liqueur. And it's, it's really hard to get hammered on Amaretto and Cokes. I mean, I, I, I'm sure it can be yeah, done. But. In our society, uh, liqueur, because it's sweet, is often uh, sort of a, a, a gateway. And I suppose it's maybe it's a better gateway than beer or hard spirits, whatever. But, you know, as as a young drinker, the brown cow was my friend, which, mm-hmm. of course, is uh, Kahlua and uh, and milk, a relative of the the White Russian, right. of the Lebowski fame. Exactly, Kahlua, a, another fine thing. I didn't like coffee as much when I was a youngster um, as I do now, and so I did not uh, guzzle the Kahlua at, at that at uh, impressionable age. But yeah, I can I can definitely recommend that. Speaking of Canadian 
crazy sweet liqueurs. I want to give a shout out to Sortilege, which is, as far as I can tell, whiskey and maple syrup or something equally delightful. But I don't know. Have you had Sortilege, Robin? Is I that, have not. Is it sounds like universe? it's the uh, Quebecois Yukon Jack. I believe that it is the Quebecois Yukon Jack. That's when um, uh, Lucien uh, Solbon used to come down to shows. He would sometimes bring Sortilege. And now Mark Richardson, uh, beloved uh, creator of Headspace, when he shows up at, at Metatopia and other shows, he is often packing some Sortilege for everyone to share out. So I, I that's my uh, Go Canada liqueur right there. Um, there are some liqueurs that are uh, good in uh, fancy uh, sweet cocktails, or perhaps not fancy so much as festive. <laughs> uh, at uh, Christmas time, your tolerance, uh, you know, you've just got so much sugar in your system from all the other cookies and cakes that you're eating that uh, somehow your tolerance for sugar in your alcohol works. So the, the candy cane is a liqueur-based uh, cocktail <laughs> that I've uh, made to the... Uh, surprised pleasure of guests in a world that in which peppermint schnapps exists i don't know why you need another kind of thing because the other thing is a uh, white chocolate liqueur all right that's fair so white good cho- i have a white chocolate liqueur that's plus legit. peppermint schnapps is actually pretty good i just say peppermint schnapps in your in your hot chocolate and you're a happy boy that's all i say right goldschlager the uh very the tasty cinnamon, uh, schnapps is also very tasty and can mm-hmm. be uh put in uh there's some Iced coffee-based uh, uh, cocktail. It also goes nicely in tea. Yes, um, which not everything does. No, very few things. Although yeah. gin goes really well in tea, strangely enough, because I guess the herbals. Uh, I mean, if, again, you have to pick your gin, you have to pick your tea, but I would not have thought it worked at all. Uh, a fancier liqueur that is fancy and is worth uh, picking up and, and hiding away from others is creme de violette, which goes in an aviation. And if you have tried to have an aviation at most bars, you have drunk sludge, bluish <laughs> industrial sludge. So if you're going to learn to make a fancy drink to impress other people or that special other person, I recommend learning to make the aviation. And then you can buy really good gin. You can buy really good creme de violette. And that way you'll always have two go-to top shelf ingredients then you can make a, a gin and tonic or whatever else you want, or just a martini, ideally, with a good gin. But if you have your creme de violette, you can make it a uh, a more uh, convivial occasion than even the martini, I think. Before we get a lot of emails, I should say, yes, you need maraschino liqueur also for an aviation. And the only maraschino liqueur you should ever buy is Luxardo uh, maraschino. So that's three top shelf things you have on your shelf not just the two I was talking about. Now, have you investigated the world of uh, Italian herb-based uh, digestifs or liqueurs? If you're all? going to say Campari, I'm going to end this podcast right now. Because no, like the, the Freni Brancas and their, and their ilk. Yeah, but I, the herbal liqueurs, I find, are always chancy. And my friend Josh and I tried to listen to the commentary track of Ocean's 12 while drinking... Uh, Negronis on the grounds that <laughs> perhaps this would help. And it turns out, no, because uh, the writer kept talking and it's like the last person I want to hear from is the guy who wrote that movie. I want to hear Soderbergh tell me all the Antonioni movies he was ripping off while he was filming it. And Negronis are, are god awful. Campari is the worst thing in the world. And the trouble is, Campari <laughs> looks like it's going to be an Anthony Minghella movie, right? It's like, oh my God, I'm going to be there on the beach with, you know, Gwyneth and, and Jude Law and we're maybe going to murder somebody. It's going to be awesome. But no, it's, it's really, really vile. It's, you know, wash out your, your, um, uh, your mouth after the dentist's office is, is what it tastes like. And I find Italian herb liqueurs by and large, 
they are in the Campari side of things, not in the uh, tasty side. I, I think Fernet you can you can make some good stuff with. Actually, you need Fernet to make um, uh, uh, some drinks that you want to drink. But again, once you're going to the level of disguising the herb liqueur with another drink, I think you've gone too far. I'm not a fan. Right. I've always been torn between I should experience that someday to thinking I bet I won't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's what's the occasion? Uh, I'm not going to buy a whole bottle of the stuff. <laughs> so you have to be out at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. But if you've had a wonderful restaurant meal, you're not going to top it with something that you think is going to be unpleasant Bitter for and experimental unpleasant, right. purposes. Although you know, apparently Alfred and Nolan's uh, grim universe uh, really likes them. I guess my final thing I would say about liqueur is that the adult version of liqueur is port. Now, if you're an English person, the idea of consuming port introduces considerable anxiety because they have complex social rules that they know are hideously embarrassing to fail to follow, but none of them actually remember. Uh, and so that, that paralyzes them. And in and some circles, they're also hideously embarrassing to follow. Uh, yes. Well, uh, many That's the ideal English custom. Exactly. It's one that yes. is embarrassing to not follow and also to follow. I think so that's how you live your whole designed. life in a state of embarrassment. Yes. But if you are a uh, barbaric North American, you can just enjoy a uh, port, which has that uh, sweetness, but also uh, a sort of a depth of character that, you know, it's not just a crazy sugary concoction that uh, makes you feel uh, vaguely embarrassed as you would be feeling intensely embarrassed if you were English. So. And speaking of after-dinner uh, tipples, I will plug Liqueur 43, specifically in the Caraquillo, which is Liqueur 43 and Espresso. And you drink that, and you feel like you are ready to take on a whole nother Spanish meal. Um, I really recommend that. So, uh, lest you think I hate all the Mediterranean, I do not. Uh, Liqueur 43, which is kind of a, a mixture of, of a bunch of flavors, 43 of them, uh, I say, mix that with your espresso and uh, thank me later. Right. Um, and one last note on the on the herbal liqueurs. Often the national liqueur of whatever country it is, is kind of weird and foul. Mm -hmm. And it's more of an initiation ritual than a beverage. Yeah. Chicago's version of that is called Malort. Oh, right. Of course. Uh, I don't think we've talked about this in the show. But let's let's wrap this up with a Malort description. Yeah. Well, it, it, tastes like, it tastes like rancid grapefruit and feet. That's what you need to know about Malort. But apparently, it has uh, become increasingly a rite of passage. I think that the that the young urban community has picked it up as a as a thing that we do to show that we are better than those people from other cities. Okay, which, so so what is malort? Uh, what is it's basically it's a wormwood liqueur. So it's the part of absinthe that you don't want to drink. Only all of that. And much more intense, and I'm sure they put something in to make it taste even worse than wormwood, because wormwood is actually non, well, it's terrible, but it's not terrible, terrible. It's not Campari terrible, it's just terrible. Whereas with Malort, I think they've deliberately made it worse somehow. I I, I can't say anything good about it except that it's a, a, a standard Chicago thing, so ergo it is good regardless of how good it is. So basically, it's, it's a test of whether you're strong enough to be a Chicagoan. Exactly. If you, are, if you are here not during the winter and you need to find out whether or not you get to stay, then, you know, drink Jepson's Malort, which is the Swedish word for wormwood, which is why it's a wormwood liqueur. Anyway, that's what I was going to say about that. Right. Well... Uh, on that hearty unrecommendation, I think we can uh, declare our work here in the uh, food hut done and can move on to our concluding hut via this exciting commercial message.
Beneath the headlines, deep in the shadow world of international security, an elite corps of covert operatives grab up their stingrays, Kevlar vests, and M4s to seek and destroy the eldritch adversaries of the Cthulhu mythos. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you are one of those agents. You're the one they call when unnatural horrors seep into the world. You fight to keep cosmic evil from claiming human lives and sanity. You conspire to cover it all up so no one else must see what you've seen or learn the terrible truths you've discovered. The quick start rulebook of Delta Green Need to Know includes everything you need to play Delta Green. Complete rules for conducting investigations, overcoming crises, fighting for your life, and watching your sanity slip away! Complete rules for character creation. Six characters ready to play. At Delta Green Operation, Last Things Last, ready for the handler, the game moderator, to introduce your team to Delta Green tonight. The physical edition of Delta Green Needs to Know also comes with a sturdy four-panel screen loaded with data to help the handler run a fast-paced, suspenseful game and sinister wraparound art to keep the players terrified. This is only the beginning. Deeper terrors can be found in Delta Green the role-playing game and its source books, available from Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once again to wend our way up the creaking cobweb steps that lead us, uh, first of all, below the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, and then into the Edwardian parlor of the consulting occultist, who is uh, here to tell us about all things supernatural, magical, and sorcerous. And this time, uh, Joshua Hillerup, our Patreon backer, has asked the consulting occultist to discourse uh, not on a particular uh, occultist, but on a field of occultism, and that is, uh, in particular, the occult symbolism of flowers. So, uh, Ken, when this note first drifted across your transom, what part of the Ken Height Memorial Library did your trembling hands uh, move toward? Well, the interesting thing about the occult symbolism of flowers is that flowers partake of many different strands of symbolism. So my hand was moving back and forth from ceremonial magic to herbalism and over to Rosicrucianism and all manner of other places because uh, flowers can represent themselves, right? Uh, rose has petals that look like uh, lady parts, and so therefore it has been associated with romantic love, right? Or they can represent their herbal uh, use, so you would grind up rose hips and that would calm you out. And so ro roses have a calming uh, quality to them as well. Or they can represent uh, what the perfume of the flower means in Golden Dawn magic. So in the Golden Dawn system of correspondence, the rose corresponds to the seventh key, which ties it in with uh, the uh, concept of Venus, as well as with the seventh card of the tarot, and so therefore that would be the... What do I want to say? Lovers? Let's say that's what it is. I'll, no doubt we'll get emails, but the, they messed around with the tarot as well. So it has the magical value, and then it's also associated with a specific god, goddess, or saint as a symbol, and so the rose it was the symbol of Isis and of Aphrodite and Venus, which perhaps goes back to the previously adduced similarity to lady parts. But it was also the symbol of the god Harpocrates, who was the god of silence and confidentiality. And some people say that is where the phrase 
sub rosa comes from, meaning something that is held secret because it is under the rose. Uh, so the rose symbolizes occult secrets and occult initiation, as well as symbolizing uh, romantic passion. Now, with all of that, you add on the language of flowers, which became a big deal in Victorian England and America, but debuted on the continent and even in England a century before the Victorians in the 17-teens. The uh, keeper of the royal gardens claims that the language of flowers came from Ottoman Turkey which is as good a guess as anyone else, I guess, has. But since it shows up in Shakespeare, for example, I think it also probably comes out of that herbalist tradition in which everything uh, has a role to play magically in the universe because God doesn't waste material. So when he makes right. a rose... And so the language of flowers is if you send X flower... You're sending X someone, symbol. You're sending a particular message. Right. So, it's the emojis of the uh, Renaissance, basically. Of the, the Renaissance and the Victorian era. And so when yes. uh, Ophelia says, here's Rue, that's remembrance, uh, that's because that's what that flower meant. It meant, I'm remembering you, or I'm re- or Rue specifically may have meant remembrance with a touch of regret. I'm, I regret what we did last night. Don't call me and don't send me any flowers because then I have to get out my book and decipher them. And the Victorians being the Victorians, they came up with huge dictionaries of what all the flower languages meant and they all contradicted each other and had good fun. But sending a lady red roses pretty much always meant I would like to get with you in the Aphrodite way, not necessarily the Harpocrates way and probably not even the number seven. So the, Symbolism of flowers winds up being tangled up in the flowers' herbal properties, in their perfumes, in what they physically look like, in their ancient connotations, because every god and goddess had magical plants that was associated with them. And then the post-Agrippa, post-Golden Dawn system of magical correspondence that they tried to wrap the entire sensible world up into to restore that sense of the numinous that, uh, say, medieval people had, because they would look at a rose and say, oh, that represents Jesus's blood spilled out for me. Good for it. And then they'd move on with their medieval life. So how do we take all of these different traditions and uh, in a, uh, say, in a fantasy uh, world, uh, create a class of floromancers. How do we uh, start making that uh, feel like something rather than just, oh, well, uh, this is a zinnia, so you powder that up and that's your fireball. And uh, <laughs> snapdragons, that's a, obviously your lizard scale uh, spell. What? How can we uh, have sort of a fun thing that uh, characters can uh, do in games with uh, all of these traditions? Well, I mean, in in fairness, that is how actual uh, herbalism works, right? You just memorize the correspondences of everything. And so snapdragons are good for um, uh, neuralgia and they're good. Uh, they're good for keeping voles away from your crops. Oh, and they also will help you kill snakes because they're called snapdragons or whatever. And so you just memorize this arbitrary batch of properties. And some of it is connected to actual herbal effects. And some of it is just that, as I say, the medieval belief that God wouldn't just make anything that just sat there. Uh, I don't get to sit there. So obviously these flowers have <laughs> got to be, you know, keeping up the side, even though Jesus specifically says, don't worry so much about the damn flowers. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the flowers have it, have, have it taken care of, bro. Don't worry. They're doing all right. I mean, that is the authentic way. And I think the way to get player characters to, or players to care about it is the same way you get players to care about anything. You either reward it, or you make it cost points to know so that they will defend it. Um, and this is, you know, up to you how deep into floral magic you want your game to get. And if you just want it to be one more plus one in a GURPS Cabal game or one more 
possible thing to do in unknown armies where it's like, oh, dandelions are annoying. That guy's annoying. I'll bet we can use dandelions to represent him in this magical ritual. Uh, that's, you know, that's just fine. But if you want to drill into it and make flowers a more fundamental part of the mythology of the world in sort of the way that Nobilis does, or you could imagine, for example, a game of Victorian magic in which, yes, all of the magical traditions are actually floral based and you need to know them because that is how you are going to get all of your powers. You have picked three uh, flowers to be sort of your, your, uh, your posy, right? And right. uh, the the flowers that are in your posy are going to drive the kinds of spells you can cast and the kinds of things you can do. And so you're restricting yourself down to those flowers. So it's not like, well, I've got these nine spells. What are the nine flowers? It's like, no, I've got these three flowers. How m- much can I min max them? How much can I dig out of the, the lore of those three flowers to get me as many awesome powers as I can get? Right. So in order to add a new sub portfolio of, of magic to your list, you have to go to the eternal plane where all of the platonic ideal versions of all these flowers are and uh, pluck the flower. But that's not just something you can just say that you've done that requires you to overcome a series of obstacles. And each uh, flower, when you get to it, has a different defender that exemplifies that flower. And you have to defeat or uh, a cousin or suborn or negotiate with uh, whatever that guardian is. So right, if you get up to the the eternal plane to, and to stick with roses, because I idiotically picked roses, um, you you're up there on the eternal plane and you want to pick a rose for your posy. Uh, guess who's guarding it? It's Aphrodite. Um, if you're in luck, it's Aphrodite. If you're not in luck, it's it's maybe Isis, who's got a a more um I think sanguine sense of literally of 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 what to do about people who show up looking for flowers although aphrodite can be kind of a jerk sometimes too in fairness right and so if for that you might have to uh you know get the goddess's agreement to pluck your thumb on the uh, thorn of the platonic ideal rose and then you know that'll cost you some blood and well mm-hmm. what is the effect of having sacrificed your blood to the rose and that's uh a new disadvantage that you wind up taking on. Or you've got, you know, that bit of, of Aphrodite in your, in your bloodstream and, and whenever she wants, she can make you fail that passion check and uh, go after the wood nymph or whatever. Right. So you, you become more and more like the guardians. And so that, you know, the pact that you undergo in order to have the, the rose associated powers, maybe, you know, if you have to defend the forces of the rose now in the mundane world, and so you've sort of declared your allegiance just the way that a, a character in uh, one of the, any of the Glorantha games declares their allegiance to a, a god uh, with a, a different package of magical powers and has to, uh, you know, act in a way that reinforces that uh, the force of what in uh, Glorantha would be runes, but here would be flowers in the world. So you can only have X number of flowers on your uh, on your shield, you can maybe only have three at most, and they can't uh, utterly conflict with each other. So you could, uh, and I think the runes analogy in Glorantha is a really good one, so that you could come up with, you know, <laughs> if you say so yourself. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't invent runes. <laughs> That's true. Yes. You didn't come anywhere close to that. You did invent the analogy, though. I did invent the analogy, um, and they could all interact differently with one another. So that if you've uh, uh, got a snapdragon and a rose, uh, you know that the aggressive qualities of the snapdragon color, what you can uh, combine with the rose. And so, uh, and it might be that you have your own 
uh, garden that you have to protect with your living versions of they that are just sort of, you know, they're not the perfect platonic versions of those flowers, but they're your flowers that are part of and parcel of your power. And so in your greenhouse, you have to make sure that uh, nobody messes with your your rose and your snapdragon and your daffodil or you know, you have to go back to square one and return to the, the plane of ideal flowers. To, you have to get back to the garden, as it were. And and once you get there, uh, you know, guess what? Aphrodite is going to be kind of annoyed with you if you uh, let your reflection of her rose uh, wither and die. And you're going to have to work harder to get that back. Or perhaps you're just going to go, okay, I'm just, I've messed it up with Aphrodite and the roses. I'm going to head over here to the peonies and uh, see what I can do with them instead. And that can also give you a uh, a shorthand for when you see a, a bad guy or a, or an unknown figure of some kind. It's like he's got uh, lilies on his shield, and so um, he well he might be French. I guess that would be one possibility. But uh, the other thing is that he might be connected with death somehow because lilies are uh, flowers involving uh, in, involving death, and you know show up in. Uh, in, in funerary imagery and things like that. And so it's like, Oh, I don't know. It, it, but it's not bad death. It's not like, um, uh, yew tree blossoms or something, but it's still deathy. So what's, what's going on with this guy? And that gives you information about the, uh, about this other figure, whether they be a wizard or a knight or whatever it happens to be that you can then plug into the way that you respond to them in game. Uh, and if, and, and like everything else, the player can either just roll to say, oh, I know that that happens to be this, or they can have the fun of getting a little uh, setting mastery and learning the language of flowers themselves. And maybe that gives them an idea, oh, I need someone who can bring this uh, woman I love back from death, so I should go find the Lily Knight, and I'm going to combine my rose power and his lily power, and we're going to bring Charles back from the dead, uh, and so we can be together again. And that's what you would do, right? Right. And your mention of the fleur de lis uh, suggests that, yes, uh, every almost every nation is associated with one flower or another, and either in your fictional universe of made-up countries or your magical version of uh, the real world, uh, it could be that you have to be... Uh, it's not necessarily that everybody is a floral magician with a a group of different flowers that they can then choose to access, but that your nationality determines the uh, flower that you are associated with, or at least a subset of the flowers is restricted to nationality. So, you know, you have the English rose and the French lily. And so if you want to have a party that has those two sets of powers in them, you have to have a French character and an English character in order to wield those. Now they might have, you know, other different sorts, you know, maybe they have, a connection to the national animal of each uh, country. This is where, of course, your sacred beaver and your maple leaf uh, come in for your um, Canadian, Canadian wizard who's yes. powered by Yukon Jack and so forth. <laughs> and that could go as far as uh, saying that, you know, that the national flower of your made-up country determines the set of stereotypes that exist uh, surrounding that national character, which may be uh, true because they're being magical, magically reinforced so that the... Uh, uh, people of the Rose Nation are especially uh, are rosy, but also have uh, uh, thorns in them, whereas the uh, people of the, the Nation of the Lily are uh, uh, languid and redolent of an intoxicating romantic death. And you can go on down the line and uh, so that you could, uh, you know, start off with the different sets of floral symbolism in order to create all of the different nations of your fantasy world. And those could give you pluses and minuses to various passions or to various other sorts of things. So if you're, if you're, if you're from the Snapdragon country, 
then you're going to be at plus one to kill dragons or maybe at plus one to save dragons, depending on exactly how you want to do it. But that can be like a little special power that you get just for being having grown up surrounded by fields of snapdragons, even if you per- yourself are going after, you know, violets and um, uh, zinnias and, and whatever else. Right. So now that we have our, our gardens well planted with uh, different gaming ideas surrounding the occult symbolism of flowers. So I think it's time for us to just sit back and admire all of these roses and lilies and pansies and zinnias and uh, uh, declare uh, yet another podcast successfully achieved. With no rue. Yes, and let's hope those bumblebees uh, just appreciate the pollen and don't sting us. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Garrett Fitzgerald. Jan Poshpashil. Jeff Cars, Jan Francois Parody, and Joe Literal. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height, and he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>